It's time to hear from the Green Party with co-leader James Shaw. This week I chatted to Green Party co-leader James Shaw about the Electoral Integrity Amendment Act, which came um, came in in 2018. And this was something that the Green Party has always uh, been against, but part of the coalition, they tolerated it. So this Amendment Act means that MPs can't change political parties uh, and it prevents them from changing while they're sitting in Parliament. It also gives a party leader the ability to kick out a MP if they reasonably believe that they dis- disproportionately aff- affect the proportionality of Parliament, which basically means that if they believe that the MP doesn't align with the party's values anymore. And so recently, um, a member's bill has been pulled out from the National Party uh, seeking to repeal this. So I chatted to James Shaw about this. We also talk about uh, reforms to the RMA as well later on and uh, also talk a little bit about the guarantee minimum income. First of all, I begin by asking James about what this all is. Over the course of the last 20 years, there's been a couple of times um, always at the behest of Winston Peters that we've had this law, which is to stop MPs leaving parties and either setting up new parties or joining other political parties once they've been elected to Parliament. And our position on that was always that it was it was an affront to democracy. We tolerated it coming into government this time because it was written through the coalition agreement between New Zealand First and the Labour Party. And both their agreement and our agreement contains a clause that says that we will, in good faith, support each other's agreements because otherwise, you know, neither of them would be operable. And so... Whilst we were terribly happy about it, we sort of allowed it to go through. Now, what happened last week was a private member's bill in the name of David Carter, who's the former Speaker of the House and he's a national MP, got pulled from the ballot rescinding that law. Now, my caucus hasn't had a chance to discuss this yet, and we haven't seen David Carter's drafting of his bill, but the likely outcome is that we'll support it, because whilst we supported... New Zealand first to put the law in place in the first place, we actually didn't have an agreement that said that we wouldn't mm. support it being taken out. The arguments for uh, for the waka jumping bill, is that is that what you phrase it as? What, well, it, I prefer to re- yeah. refer to it as a party hopping bill, actually. Okay, party hopping bill, yeah. great. Yeah. Um, is the argument for it has been that it maintains electoral integrity because you'll vote someone in, for example, and it will be under the Greens' values, and if they were to switch and jump to a different party, that's not who you voted for. So what what would be your response to that? So that is the argument in favour of it. Um, and, you know, there are people that subscribe to that. On the other hand, you need MPs to be able to exercise their conscience at all times. Uh, ultimately, whilst... People do vote for political parties. They are actually also voting for a group of individuals, and those representatives in the House uh, need to be free to express their opinions without the concern that if they, you know, don't toe the line that their leadership sets, that they'll be chucked out of Parliament. And so there was the concern that it would have a muting effect on the diversity and quality of our democracy, and that. Actually, you know, if, if you sort of remove the ability for members of parliament to think for themselves, there's not much point in having 120 of them. <laughs> you might as well just have the party leaders in parliament. 
you know, so that's the kind of the counter argument. Have we seen any instances recently where there have been perhaps members just towing the party line and having to... Well, you see it all the time, constantly. I mean, you see it more, of course, when you're a member of parliament and can see it up close. But I know that there are cases, you know, I look across the house at members of the opposition and I see them trotting out lines that I know that they don't believe in. I absolutely know that. And I'm sure that they would say the same thing about us. And so I think that you've got to have a level of order and organisation in the House, otherwise it just it would be chaotic. But uh, you do need members of Parliament to be able to come to a position that is perhaps from time to time different from the party line. And that's just how democracy should function. So with the upcoming election, you mentioned that because of the coalition, the Greens tolerated this, and we've recently also seen other disappointments, including the light rail. So I'm just wondering with, you know, the next round of elections, are we going to see more of a robust position from the Greens? I would think so. <laughs> I mean, as, as we as we go into the election, you know, obviously there's a period of about six weeks where whilst the government still continues, it moves into more of a caretaker mode, right, you know, for, for about six weeks leading in, into uh, election day. And that is a period of time when all political parties, including the Greens, will put out their stalls and, and say what we're offering to the public for the next term. I have to say, I think that the chances that New Zealand First will be part of a government are vanishingly small because both Labour and the Greens, you know, could form a government without them. And I think that what that possibility brings is actually a truly progressive government that can take much stronger action, poverty, action on climate change, action on protecting nature than we've been able to do, constrained by New Zealand First in this term of government. Are you confident that negotiations with Labour as well will will ensure that, that Greens voters aren't disappointed once again? Well... I mean, there will inevitably be disappointments, absolutely. I mean, it's just the nature of a multi-party democracy is that no one gets everything they want. And we are a smaller party party than the Labour Party, and and I would imagine that that will probably be uh, the case after the election as well. Um, And so you just have to accept those things. But it would be also true to say that the constraint in this last term has not been the Labour Party, it's been the New Zealand First Party, and that we're much more aligned between Labour and the Greens are than Labour and New Zealand First. And so we will be able to go further and we will be able to go faster in the next term of government if it is just the two of us. And uh, secondly, I wanted to touch on the RMA today. And so previously we've spoken about how the Greens have had some concerns about how it's now being able to fast-track the process. Uh, And there's been a few reforms and changes thus far. And so what is the Greens' position now on it? Well, we voted against the bill at its third reading last week. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I do want to acknowledge that David Parker, who's the Minister for the Environment, who sponsored the bill through the government, had put an enormous amount of work into bringing the bill closer to where our conditions of satisfaction were, mainly to do with environmental bottom lines. But it was one of those situations where, on balance, we just didn't feel like it was quite secure enough in either those environmental bottom lines or the ability of the public to participate in in decisions that affect them. It was finally balanced because there are a number of really great projects that we would like to see accelerated. But, you know, it was just one of those things where when when we got to the end of the Committee of the Whole House stage and we looked at the amendments and what had stayed the same and what had changed... We just thought, well, on balance, we just couldn't quite bring ourselves to vote for it. So I was having a quick read-through of the changes that were, and 
I guess for me, I felt like it was quite vague. So it stated that there would be stronger te atiriti o Waitangi protections. But for example, what are those protections? And, and what is the criteria used to decide if a project is climate friendly? Uh, I guess, is, is there enough clarity in this? Well, th- I guess that was our concern, was that whilst the bill has has those things in it, there is still an enormous amount of discretion. Um, and it, if, for example, uh, the worst thing happens and the government changes, uh, then you would end up with a national government that had a lot of discretion over how to apply those clauses. And that felt like a risk um, n- not with not worth taking. Mm. So the the treaty provisions in there, I mean, there is someone, for example, there's an iwi representative from the local iwi on the panels that make the decisions. There are safeguards in the bill that say that, you know, it cannot apply to, for example, uh, Māori land or or any sort of settlement provisions. So, you know, there are a number of really good provisions in the bill. But like I said, on, on balance, we were just we, we sort of felt it, it wasn't quite worth the risks that were being taken. Mm. And the, the RMA has been criticised for a long while now, and I guess we keep seeing reforms and changes. Uh, but for the next round of government, uh, are we going to see a more substantial change? Because it feels like yes. a little bit like we keep sticking <laughs> a plaster on something and trying yes, to... That's right. It's It's many, many pages long... Uh, yeah, is there going to be a substantial reform? <laughs> there is. No, you're right. It's over 700 pages long now. It's actually more than twice as long as it was when it was originally passed. Mm-hmm. And that's because every single government uh, for the last 30 years has come in and tinkered around the edges, which has meant that it's full of internal contradictions. It's convoluted. The processes do take far too long. Um, and actually, it hasn't been all that great at protecting the environment, which is sort of the whole point. So... There is a a total review being led by uh, former Judge Randerson, which has sort of, I think it's been operating for over two years now, has been winding through a total rethink of where to go with this. And David Park has been leading on that too, and that'll report back after the election. And then I think what you'll see after that is that the next term of government will see a substantial rethink from first principles of the RMA, and I think that that's probably a good thing and about time. I'm excited to see yeah, what happens there. Uh, and, and lastly, I wanted to touch on the guarantee minimum income, which is something the Greens are calling for as part of the, the um, Green Party poverty plan. And so could you talk to me a little bit about what, what this is? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the basic idea is it's a, a total rethink of our social safety net. Um, and we think that post-COVID, there's more openness to a, a, a radical rethink. The basic idea is that um, anyone who needs it, so this is not a universal basic income, it doesn't go to people who don't need it. This this goes to um, anyone who finds themselves unemployed or students uh, of $325 a week. There are then top-ups, for example, uh, if you've got children um, or you know if you're a sole parent and so on. Um, and so the idea is that it would be very, very simple, just the same way that the wage subsidy operated during the pandemic crisis. You know, you rang up, you registered, you said, you know, um, my business has seen revenue fall off a cliff. I need some help to keep my employees going. And we wrote you a check. That was kind of straightforward. And what that shows is that a sort of a, a principle of universalism and providing support to people who need it when they need it actually, it, you know, creates better outcomes than the sort of punitive 
sanction-driven model that we've got at the moment. Currently, does this mean that people owe money to work and income? Is there a lot of debt involved? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it, it, is a, it would be a total overhaul of the entire social safety net, the, the, the way that the system works at the moment. You know, you wouldn't, for example, have thousands and thousands of case managers trawling through the private lives of every single unemployed person in the country and applying what are at times extremely punitive sanctions on them. It it just accepts the principle that there are times when people need support, when they need help, Mm. and and that they need an adequate level of support to be able to make ends meet. And at the moment, that just doesn't exist. And uh, yeah, my final question is, uh, what would your response be to people who may be hesitant about how we determine who needs it or not, because might, they might say that there might be a reason why there is such detail involved in terms of determining who receives um, support or not. Yeah, look, I think that's a very Victorian notion about the deserving poor and the undeserving poor that we've had in this country for a very long time. Again, what the wage subsidy showed uh, was, um, with very few questions asked, it is actually possible for us to support each other through a crisis. Um, and that should be our, our first basic principle, that we actually just care for one another. That was James Shaw for the Green Party. The Wire. We'll be back.